This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Welcome to the show, everyone. We have an exciting new episode with Dr. BJ Lieber, our specialist for all things physical therapy and functional movement. Today, we are talking about post-workout recovery, why it's important, and most importantly today, we're going to be focusing on what tools we should be using to help our body get ready for that next training session. BJ Lieber graduated from the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine with a doctorate in physical therapy and rehabilitation science. He's a board-certified orthopedic specialist, a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and a USA Triathlon Level 1 coach. He specializes in comprehensive movement testing and injury prevention among athletes and has worked with numerous amateur professional triathletes, athletes, track and field athletes, marathoners, and ultra runners. BJ is an avid triathlete himself with over 50 tries under his belt, including standout races at Alcatraz and Age Group Nationals. BJ, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Also joining us is Coach Elizabeth James. Elizabeth came to the sport from a soccer background and quickly rose through the triathlon ranks using TriDot, from a beginner to top age grouper to a professional triathlete. She's a Kona and Boston Marathon qualifier who has coached triathletes with TriDot since 2014. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. As always, it's great to be here. We've got a great episode coming right up. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I'm Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people, and the captain of the middle of the pack. As always, we'll roll through our warm-up question, settle in for our main set topic, and then wind things down with the cool down. Lots of good stuff. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. Y'all know I love getting questions from the podcast audience that I can then play for our coaches to get a direct answer for you right there on the spot while we are recording. And today we have a fun warm-up question. This comes to us from Shannon from Houston, Texas. Take it away, Shannon. Hey, TriDot family. This is Shannon, ambassador down in Houston. Hey, I had a fun warm-up or cool-down question for you. Christmas is right around the corner. What's on your triathlon Christmas wish list? Okay, so with Christmas coming, uh, it's no accident, BJ Elizabeth, that we're talking recovery tools uh, because I know athletes are going to be out there. They're going to be eyeballing the market. You know, what, what are those next couple try items I should be buying? Um, and, and so it's a perfect time to kind of talk about the, the tools and, and, and the tech and the purchases, the things that we can get that can help us recover. Uh, but, but before we even get to that, it's just a great warm-up from Shannon to kind of talk about what is just that, that that try item on the top of your bucket list, whether it's for recovery, whether it's for the swim, the bike, the run, your day-to-day training. Uh, what are you guys looking to pick up via uh, your Santa Claus uh, wish list this year? Uh, Elizabeth? Ah, gosh. So for me, I think this year, top of my Christmas list is a new pair of cycling shoes. Um, I spend a lot of money on my running shoes more than I really like to admit sometimes, but I've always kind of skimped on less expensive 
cycling shoes. Um, and my current pair is getting rather worn down. The smell of them at this point is nearly unbearable. So I think a replacement pair is very much in my future. And I'd, I'd like something a little nicer than what I've currently been wearing. So may have to ask Santa Claus for a little splurge on that. Uh, Mr. BJ Leeper, what are you hoping to pick up from Santa this year uh, for, for your top try item on your wish list? Oh, man. There's there's a lot. Santa could bring me about anything, and I'd be happy. But, um, you know, my family and I just moved up here to northwest Montana about three years ago. So we're kind of in the Flathead Valley area, and we're literally the gateway to Glacier National Park. And so it's just beautiful up here. There's mountains. There's there's gravel for days, so I've honestly been eyeing a new gravel bike as all triathletes. That oh. are, yeah, that everyone that's into triathlon obviously loves the bike part, and you know, obviously that's where we spend the most of our money, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. we always joke that the number of bikes you always need is n plus one. So my my mm-hmm. next plus one would be probably a salsa warbird. Just a nice um, gravel bike to. He already has it picked oh, out. Yeah. Oh yeah, got it one picked, out. picked out. Not just gravel bike. He knows exactly which we know. one. And, and if it wasn't that, you know, if if Santa didn't have the pockets for that, nothing. Not that it's necessarily that much cheaper, but I'm I'm due for also maybe an upgrade in the in my trainer department with my bike trainer at home. So I've I've actually been looking at getting a new smart trainer. A, a Tax Neo is probably what I'd like to go with. Um, so that's, that's probably, you know, there's two, I'll let Santa choose. So real quick for me, my top try Christmas item, uh, it comes from a company called TriRig. Uh, they produce an aero, uh, time trial bike called the Omni that actually Tridot coach Jeff Rains, uh, just purchased for himself. And, uh, I, I don't really need a new tri bike, but they have a lot of really clever, uh, kind of carbon aftermarket aero accessories. Um, and I've really been eyeballing, they call them the tri-rig scoop arm cups. Uh, and I've been looking at these, you know, they're, they're kind of longer, really light, uh, but really well padded arm cups that just help make holding that arrow position uh, a little bit easier. Um, I have a nice kind of integrated, uh, carbon cockpit that I added to my bike last year, but it kind of came with these dinky little arm cups that just aren't the most supportive or the most comfortable. So you know, particularly as I'm training for, you know, my first full Ironman, um, the tri-rig scoops just look awesome. Uh, and, and they're, they, they're the item that's made the top of my try Christmas list. Um, but Hey guys, as always, we're going to kind of throw this question out to our listeners on Facebook and Instagram. So, uh, what try item is at the top of your Christmas list? I, I personally just can't wait to hear what you all have to say to this one, uh, particularly Shannon. Uh, if she thought this question up, I'm sure it's because she has some try items on her own list for Santa. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. So the whole point of working out and pushing our muscles more and more in training is so that they strengthen and we can improve as athletes. A vital part of this process that is often overlooked is our recovery after a training session. But what does recovery actually do for our muscles? And how can we tell whether or not muscles are recovering adequately? And out of all the recovery tools out there on the market, which ones are most worth our monetary investment? All that and more today with Dr. BJ Leeper. And BJ, a lot of our discussion today, I kind of alluded to with Christmas coming, 
Uh, and, and if somebody's listening to this episode and, and Christmas has passed, you know, there's always a birthday or Valentine's Day or something around the corner, right, where you can ask for one of these items we're going to be talking about. Um, so, so, so we're really going to focus on kind of the, the tools of the trade that are out there on the market right now for triathletes to buy and use in recovery. But kind of before we get to that, talk to us a little bit about why recovery is important and what is actually happening in our muscles while we recover. Yeah, this is a great question. And what's interesting is when you talk about recovery and even when you try to look at the literature in the triathlon space for recovery, there's just not a lot um, specific to triathlon in general. Now, you're, you're going to look at um, different disciplines within triathlon, running, biking, swimming, and, and maybe see a little bit more on recovery there. But even at that, there's still not a lot of good, solid, conclusive evidence on on what is the best way to recover. And I think a lot of it's just because there's not a great way to really measure, truly define what recovery looks like or what, what to be recovered means. I think the, the best ways that we see it studied right now to this point has been looking at something that's called DOMS, Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness which, you know, if you look at what causes DOMS, we know that exercise-induced muscle injury and slight um, strains in the muscles, micro-tears in the muscles is what develops into DOMS. But DOMS is really a a subjective experience, right? So when you rate um, a scale of DOMS, when you're looking at these different studies, it's truly a subjective scale. So what it comes back to is the athlete's really perception of, of what they feel and how they feel. Now, there are different things that we've started to see um, as far as recovery measurements that, that are kind of a window into the system, but it's, it's still different in how it's all getting measured and what's meaningful, what matters. Um, resting heart rate, for example, has been a long-lasting way. People wake up after a tough workout the night before, the day before, they take the resting heart rate and they kind of track and see if it's changing. Heart rate variability is a big thing that we're starting to see. I mean, it's been going for years now, but people are starting to, to dive into that a little bit deeper. And that's a completely another podcast in and of itself because there's a lot there. But basically a, a window into your autonomic nervous system to see how rested you are. Um, How much are you into your sympathetic state versus your parasympathetic state, which is the parasympathetics we're going to talk a little bit about today is kind of your rest and digest state. So along those lines, yeah, there's different measurements. You know, in the clinic, you could, you know, in the lab, you could measure, draw blood, take a pole of, of inflammatory cell markers in the body, but realistically, what we have to go off of in an everyday setting is is how we feel. Um, not to get too off track, but um, what we feel, like we could, we could, spoiler alert, we could wrap up this entire segment and basically say that recovery is all in your head. And literally, the whole adage of it depends could be applied to every single thing that we're going to talk about today. Um, but I think that Shortest podcast yeah, short, ever. That's just what I was going to say. Shortest podcast like, ever. The end. The end. <laughs> it's all in your head. It depends. We're done. But the reality is you <laughs> you don't experience discomfort or pain in the body unless your brain tells you as such. And so, you know, we, we come back to a lot of neurology, not to get 
overly scientific with it all, but but really um, our our perception and experience our perception is really going to drive our experience, right? I remember when I was working in Kansas City, I was fortunate enough to listen, and I was at a seminar of one of the lead pain science experts in the world. Um, one of these one of these seminars just talking about chronic pain in particular. And the guy's name was is Lorimer Mosley, and he's just a super charismatic speaker. He's he's this Australian native that did his studies at Oxford, so he's got this super cool accent that makes him sound even more smart than he is. And um, he's got this just really unique perspective and philosophy on pain and why we feel what we feel. And just to give an example, uh, he tells this story that's always just stuck with me on his own personal experience with pain. And he tells a story about how he was camping out in the outback. He's up one morning. It's a beautiful day. He's barefoot. He's walking in the bush. And he's taking a few steps, and he and he, he feels this prick on the outside of his left lower leg. And he continues to walk. And and the next day, basically, he tells the story better than I do, but he... he basically says the next day he wakes up in a hospital. And what had happened is he (laughs) had been bitten by one of the most deadliest snakes in Australia, a brown snake of some sort, I can't remember. But but he had this experience where almost life-threatening, he almost died from this whole episode. And that prick that he had felt on his lower leg was the snake biting him. So he tells this story and he says, so that obviously was a traumatic experience in his life that his brain kind of uh, roadmapped. And a year later or so, he, he tells a story then of how he's in a very similar scenario. He's, he's out camping, walking in the bush, and he is walking, talking to somebody else and brave guy i'd be like no more yeah camping no more, for me. No more camping, camping at this point yeah <laughs> like, that's exactly uh, right no thanks <laughs> and as he's walking he all of a sudden steps and he feels this searing sharp shooting intense pain just flood into his his body he starts screaming bloody murder he looks down and it's a stick that he had stepped on and <laughs> his whole story just kind of sums up the fact that his brain with that previous experience had created a scenario where the setting was right, the context was right, and his body had taking, taken what should have been a benign experience of just a small scrape of a stick on his lower leg to feeling what was in to him was excruciating pain. And what he felt was completely real. However, the pathology behind it was completely non-existent it was it was a non-event but his brain had ramped up a danger alert in his mind that was so significant that what he felt was was discomfort to the nth degree taking the time to kind of preface what we're going to get into with recovery by telling the story just kind of shows the power of the brain to not only you know ramp up the system to increase our experience of pain, but it also has the capacity to ramp down. Um, so that initial prick that he felt when he was first walking on, on the outside of his left lower leg was a legitimate snake bite. He had passed it off at the time as a stick, 
uh, scraping his leg, and he, he didn't feel anything at the time, and then almost died. And so it's really interesting, and I really love talking about this stuff because it's just fascinating to me, the power that our brains hold to to both ramp up our pain experiences and to ramp down our discomfort or pain experiences. And so holding in that light, if we can consider these recovery tools we're going to get into with that perspective of the the physiology and neurology behind it, a lot of times that helps us interpret what's maybe going to work for us, maybe what's not going to work for us. Um, and a lot of it, like we're saying, we could wrap it all up by saying it's it's all in your head. And when we say it's in your head, it's not not that we're we're saying it's it's just all this made up stuff, but what you feel is real if your brain tells you. And can oh, we uh-huh. have an influence over that perspective with what we apply to to that scenario? So if our brain has this chronic pain song, so to speak, stuck stuck in its in our heads, can we change the tune? Are there different devices, different tools on the market that can help us change that song? Um, and mitigate some of that because we know again that delayed onset muscle soreness is real it's not just your your brain is making it up it it comes from there's research to show that it it comes from chemical inflammation uh, different things in the body interstitial fluid all these things that can influence why we feel doms but understanding the brain might help us understand why some people might not get as sore as other people. Maybe they're, maybe it's the same sore, but it's all subjective and they feel it more than somebody else. Um, and, and what might work for one person with recovery might not work for the other. And again, that comes back to our, it depends, but we'll, we'll still try to speak to it as, as much as we can. Cause it, the science is, is interesting, but sometimes it's with recovery tools. It's, it's almost more about the marketing than the science at times. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of why we, you know, wanted to, to hit this with an expert and wanted to hit this with somebody who, um, you know, you've used many of these tools we're going to talk about in your own practice with athletes. And, and, you know, you kind of have your preferences for, uh, you know, the, the most efficient way to, to help people, you know, recover. I mean, for, for me, I, I think the most sore I feel in my training week is after strength sessions. Um, and after a train, you know, after, after a strength session, um, you know, I, I'm going to be tired and achy maybe after a hard swim, bike, run session, but, after strength work, you know, I'm, I'm physically, my muscles are tighter the next day. Right. And, and you kind of have to, you know, stretch a little bit and, and, and limber out a little bit and, and try to help your, your muscles stay loose and kind of mitigate the, the effects, you know, DOMS has on, on your muscles. Um, so before we get to talking about kind of some of the different tools, um, BJ, how can we tell as athletes after a session when we are feeling sore, um, or, you know, regardless of how much of it is, is psychological versus physical, you know, how, how can we tell we are, adequately recovering in between sessions instead of overdoing it. Yeah, well, it's funny because what I do is on my next session, about five minutes into my run, I just look at my Garmin and see what my performance condition is. And if it tells me fair, I get nervous. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or or sometimes it says poor, and I'm like, man, should I have even started this run? You know, all jokes aside, there's there's different metrics to kind of help us know if we're recovered. Like we were alluding to before, like, like our heart rate variability is a big one and and that'll probably be another podcast we could get into because there's so much interesting science out there with that and and i think the garmin with what they use with some of their metrics they they use that as well but it is a feel thing and if you're if you're feeling soreness um you know again the question is is it is it a time to push through that is it time to hold back 
But I think we all know we're going to feel a certain amount of soreness as we train for triathlon. It's just the nature of what we do and, and, and those types of things. So I think the key with recovery is, you know, considering those variables that we have some power to control to make sure we can get to our next session or our race as fresh and, and ready to hit those numbers or hit that session as we can. And some of that's going to be a feel thing. Um, but there's other metrics I think we can use to help guide us. But when we're s- simply going off a of feel, I think that as we do, and we're talking about different tools to help us feel a little bit better, it, literally you can use it as at, at that same state of the DALAM, the, the delayed onset muscle soreness of the DOMS. If we can actually look at that, and that's, it is a subjective rating, but if we can use that as our barometer, you know, and how you would rate yourself. I think we all know intuitively when we're ready to roll, when we're not. And and then a lot of times we'll have technology to help us maybe guide us one way or the other. But I think the key is just looking at what are the things we can control and how do we set those variables up to help us be more successful. And you guys have talked before, I know, in previous episodes of some of these big things with regards to recovery, especially nutrition. It's a huge one. Um, sleep is another big one that's another episode in and of itself but I think when yeah. we're talking about tools to help the body uh, literally if we boil it down and keep it really simple we're talking about feel and if there's something that helps you feel less sore and you're ready to roll it's like you know you're you're going to hit that next session a little bit better maybe than you would have otherwise yeah no that that's a great kind of opening disclaimer um, and, and so let, let's just kind of you know, start diving into the market of, of what items are out there right now that triathletes are, uh, maybe they have some of these, maybe they're looking to get some of these, maybe they, you know, see ads and see other athletes, uh, in their pictures using these and they wonder, should I have that too? Um, so let's just kind of go through it. And, and I think it's so, you know, I, I always look at when, when we're planning episodes and thinking about what to hit next. Okay. As your normal everyday athlete, you know, what, what's something that I've wondered, what's something that we all think about. And, and so to hear from a, actual physical therapist, um, you know, how these tools are used, which of these tools are necessary, how helpful they, they can or, or can't be. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be really beneficial again, especially as we're kind of approaching the holiday season when people are looking to pick up a, a, a new item or two. So, um, BG, I'm going to start just at the top with kind of one of the higher priced, you know, bigger ticket items. And, um, a lot of athletes have them, um, plenty more myself included, as I said, want them, um, talk to us about recovery boots. You know, what do these do? Who are they for? And are they worth the sticker price for the everyday athlete? Yeah, it's it's interesting. They they've become really popular um, recently, and and I mean they've been around for a little while now, but even more recently they've been they've been even more popular. And I think again, if you look at recovery in the literature. And there's not a lot of great research, but if you look at some systematic reviews of the best research out there, which is randomized controlled trials, what you'll find um, in the very limited reviews that are out there is that at the top of the list, as far as what's most effective in decreasing DOMS and potentially having effect on those inflammatory markers or inflammatory cells in the body, the, the thing that comes to the top of that list is massage. And, you know, massage is one of those things that is a lot of people have had experience with, but massage can almost be extrapolated out to compression or vibration of the muscles, some input to the muscle that affects and evokes a change. 
So massage, we could almost extrapolate out to compression. We could, we could, you know, put it over as the overarching umbrella to vibration, all these different things that, that have an influence of, of moving molecules and, and fibers within the muscles that, that can be accounted for that. And so it's interesting because the, the other few on that list that have shown some significance, all the others don't really have any, any long-lasting data to show one way or the other. It's all more anecdotal. But the others on that list are cold water immersion and, uh, and active recovery. So getting some movement after an event or after training, just having, having some blood flow. Um, so when we, when we bring it back to compression boots, compression boots do just that, like top of the list, massage in a way that's input to the system. Now you can argue that there's mobilization, uh, movement of lymphatic fluid, of, of fluid that's holding some of those inflammatory cell markers and, and cells. And again, there's just not a lot of evidence to show that it's doing what it, what we think it's doing, you know? It doesn't mean it's not valuable. Um, I, I always love when Jeff Boer talks about, he, he uses this quote a lot, and I love it. It's the Mark Twain quote of, it's not, it's not what we don't know that gets us in trouble. It's what we think we know that just ain't so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of that in, in this world of recovery. Again, it's a lot of times it's more marketing than science. But specifically with recovery boots, you know, what they do is it's kind of this peristaltic compression. Think snake eating its prey right it's moving the food down the down the length of its body um just like with boots it's i have a different visual next do you, time i get do you in love that idea with the boots it's like eating your legs <laughs> oh yeah so it's well i hate snakes so now next time i'm gonna get in and be like about snakes right. this, this, this is a I snake know. episode yeah. for some reason i don't know how that Ooh. happens but, <laughs> but yeah it's it's intermittent compression meaning it's it's giving you a little squeeze to the legs and then it's releasing and then it's a little more squeeze and it releases and it moves up and moves down there's so many different settings there's so many different flavors of boots that you can find and buy but at the end of the day that input to the central nervous system with some compression on the legs, compression on the muscles, wherever it's placed, can be beneficial if, again, your brain perceives it as not a threat and something that feels really good. And if that's the case and you feel recovered, you feel less sore, whether or not we really know that it's moving fluid or it's it's decreasing potential inflammation, um, bottom line is at the end of it, a lot of times it feels good. And I've got a lot of clients, patients, and even myself that love compression boots. I just love that feel. And afterwards, I just I just feel like there's been a change and I feel rejuvenated. And so there's, there, you can't diminish that. There's a lot to that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm kind of in that camp of whether it's a psychological boost <laughs> or, you know, actually something. I, I love the feel of it. I, I love getting in my Normatec boots. I feel fantastic once I get out. So yeah, I mean, feels good. I'm going to keep doing it. So Elizabeth, in your training, um, since you have the Normatec ones, um, mm-hmm. how do you find them implementing into your training? Do you use them every day or do you use kind of save it for 
hard session days, you know, how often do you find yourself using them? Uh, so kind of on, on my schedule, I, I will typically use them after some of those harder interval sessions. Okay. So like after a Tuesday interval bike workout, um, I'll use them after a Wednesday interval run session, uh, after those long Saturday bricks for sure after a long run. Um, and I mean, when I was teaching, I loved them for multitasking as well, that I oh, would yeah. grade papers well in the boot. So I was mm-hmm. like, well, I'm still taking care of my training and recovery because, you know, I have to be sitting down yeah. anyway. Um, and so I kind of try to, you know, find times where, okay, I've, I've done a hard session. I'm going to be sitting. And while I'm sitting, I might as well use that time productively as part of the recovery as well. Yeah, I've got it. So, I mean, we've talked about, you know, kind of these higher <laughs> expense items with the recovery boots. I, I think a much less expensive approach to getting some of that compression on the muscles comes through compression socks or sleeves. Um, and those could be worn, you know, either before, during or after, after an activity. Um, I know some athletes swear by their compression socks. Others feel no difference. You know, is this kind of the same thing that we were talking about before where, you know, it might be more of a psychological boost um, or would these compression socks also be helpful to our muscles? Yeah. And exactly what you just said. I, I think, I think it has a lot of potential to be that psychological boost. And if, if it feels good, you're going to perform, you're going to recover. Um, really the literature out there on compression socks, especially um, is inconclusive. There's there's some studies that show it has some advantage in recovery. There's others that don't. There's not a lot that says it can improve performance. So it is it is in a different category. Even though it is compression, it's obviously doing something a little bit different than what we're talking about with compression boots. That's a little bit higher pressure. Most compression boots are going to run a level of pressure anywhere from. 30 millimeters of mercury to upwards of 200 or more, um, whereas compression socks, depending on the, the brand, um, is in that 5 maybe to 10 millimeters of mercury category of compression. So I think what compression socks, the reason that I think a lot of people love them is that what it does do is it kind of reduces the, the muscle vibration. So whether you're walking as recovery or running during a race with it or training, you know, if it, if you do have some soreness and it dampens a little bit of that vibration of the muscle, you might not feel that soreness quite as intensely. And that can be therapeutic, you know, and I think that, that uh, even though it's not maybe giving you the same massage capability component that you'd find maybe in the compression boot, the, the socks, if it can, if it can dampen the vibration of the muscle and maybe, maybe mobilize and improve some, some, uh, recovery flow of inflammatory markers, then go for it. You know, I've, I've never subscribed to them myself just cause I, I don't have a lot of experience with them and I've never felt the need to use them. But I, like you said, I, I know a lot of people that love them and I'd say, gosh, if you, if you love them, that's a cheaper form of, of compression that you can definitely apply and use. Well, I'll say this from my personal experience. I have some, I like them, but I don't want to invest the 20 minutes that it takes for me to put the (laughs) compression socks on Uh, to get the effects. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like it takes me forever. I kind of save them just for those, after those really hard sessions, my, my calves get a little twitchy uh, after harder sessions, particularly the harder bike sessions or the longer swim sessions. And, and, uh, BJ, and I, BJ and I have talked about that a little bit, um, you know, uh, off before on how I'm probably 
there's probably something in my, um, you know, functional movement where I'm overusing my calves. And so, uh, but anyway, so, so I find after the hard sessions, if I do throw on some compression socks or sleeves, um, that, that twitchiness, uh, I don't really have it as much. Um, uh, I don't really notice it as much. Sometimes I don't notice it at all. Uh, if I don't wear them after a harder session, I'm, I'm probably the next morning or in the middle of the night going to wake up with my calves kind of twitching a little bit. So that's just my own kind of personal uh, anecdotal evidence. I haven't found any difference in wearing them for exercise or during exercise. But I've I've thought about this before. I haven't done it yet, but um, I was at a medical multi-sport conference in Colorado Springs, and I was talking with a few of the, the medical doctors there, and you know we just happened to get on that topic of of compression garments, and and a couple of them were actually saying that they when they traveled when they flew they would wear them, and and that's the mm-hmm. that's one area that I've I've thought about. If I use them myself, I'd I'd probably consider it for that because as we all know, when we travel and we fly, sometimes we'll get a little swelling in our feet and legs. Um, and and these guys were talking about how they they really liked it for that. But again, I think it's all individual. But but that might be a, a really viable area. I don't, I don't know of any research on that, but that might be something that you could consider when you're traveling. Yeah. And I know that in the like race recon webinars that we do, I mean, John always mentions that as, you know, kind of something to consider that if you're going to be traveling, if you're going to be sitting on a plane for a number of hours, consider some compression as a way to alleviate some of that uh, cankle appearance that (laughs) that may come otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So BJ, earlier you you mentioned that one of the things that has been proven helpful is, um, you know, ice, ice therapies uh, of sorts. And I've seen um, some variations of compression sleeves that actually have incorporated ways to get ice or heating pads or cooling sleeves kind of um, in there with a compression sleeve to kind of enhance the recovery experience. Is this actually kind of a nice one-two punch, you know, uh, uh, for, for your muscles or joints, or, or do you recommend other ways of incorporating the heating or ice? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's huge. And I think um, I've seen a, a big difference in our clinic. We've we've been using a system called Game Ready for a number of years. Oh, yeah. And, love that. <laughs> and Game Ready's, I mean, they've kind of taken a corner on the market, uh, captured the market as far as um, that area of compression and cryotherapy. But we use it all the time with patients for recovery. Athletes use it all the time, and it's it's a really big one where, again, you're taking, from the little evidence we know in the literature, you're taking two of the top things. You're taking compression or the massage of the muscle at the same time as you're getting some cold water um, effect flowing through. And, and the way they work, you know, Game Ready's basically, for those that haven't experienced it, you're basically putting on a sleeve that has a bladder within it that can have ice water run through it and air at the same time. And you hook up a hose to the sleeve and the hose is connected to what looks like this Yeti cooler that's filled with ice water and it pumps it, circulates it throughout. And so it gives kind of an intermittent compression at the same time as it's delivering ice therapy. And, and, you know, the range of what we see in the literature for, for cold water benefits is typically going to be in the realm of it has to be below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and our game ready systems usually run between like um, 34 to 50 degrees. And then it, it, most of the research you'll read for ice is going to be between eight to 15 minutes to be therapeutic. So that's kind of the, the realm there, but yeah, those, those can be really beneficial, really huge. 
So kind of moving along on some of these other tools that have been around, um, massage guns have, you know, kind of popped up. They've been around for a little while now. It seems like their popularity has just exploded in the recent years with, you know, multiple companies putting out kind of these consumer friendly options um, at various price points. So BJ, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on, you know, kind of what are the best practices for leveraging a massage gun in our training or recovery? Yeah, and this is a big one um, because this has just really exploded lately. I mean, everybody's on the market with their massage gun, and and I think back to when we first started using them in the clinic, and I just remember thinking, why didn't I come up with this? Like, it's literally (laughs) this handheld tool with a knob on the end. It's like, how did I not come up with this? And and now it seems like everybody has one. So Mm -hmm. just like you said, I, I think it's it's exploded on the scene we know that just that vibration input feels good along the same lines as how we know the massage is is a beneficial recovery aspect it's it's doing that it's compressed compression of the tissue and influences the central nervous system mobilizes fluid I'm, i'm sure it's doing any and all of those things at the end of the day it's it's just finding what flavor works well for you. So, you know, we started out using Theragun in the clinic and and we found it was it was working well, but they were they were really loud and you could hardly talk over them and and you know, I think in the fitness world in the gym, nobody cares about loud, but in the clinic we were always finding that gosh, if, if a couple of guys were using them at the same time, you, you could hardly speak over it. So we kind of gravitated towards uh, Hyperice brand, which their massage. That's what got. I have. Yeah, their massage gun is called the Hypervolt. Yep. And yeah, it's great. It's that it's quieter. was my Christmas present last year. I was going to say go. I may have just added to my Christmas list as we're talking about this. I was like, oh yeah, I want one of those too. <laughs> and again, you, there's so many out there: the Hypervolt, the Theragun, Tim Tam, Thumper. I mean, you've got so many different kinds. Um, but again, what we see in the clinic is we've just we've been using the Hypervolt now for several years, and it's it's quiet. It has never given us issues. Knock on wood, it was breaking down, and we use it every day and multiple times a day. It's got different frequencies, and everybody's preference on on feel is going to be different. So, does it need to be the Hypervolt, which is probably going to run you about three hundred dollars? Um, could it be something cheaper? Totally. It just really depends on what you feel as beneficial, and 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 you go from there. But um, what's interesting, just an aside on on Hypervolt and and Hyperice is a huge brand now of of recovery. They've actually they bought out Normatec, I think, back in March of this year. So Normatec, the compression boots, are are technically now mm-hmm. under Hyperice brand. And again, it's not it's not simply because they're the biggest name. I think what we found in the clinic is that they just work and they're industrial strength. They hold up, and we just we just have really found that patients like them. So, um, as far as utilizing them, the timing of how you utilize them, I think there's another conversation. It's it's uh, more about what you're going for. Are you are you looking to recover? Are you looking to actually correct some of your movement prior to training and what does your training look like and so there's a lot of timing of when you administer vibration to the system 
and it depends on what your goals are. Again, is your goal to simply recover, to relax, to decrease your DOMS? Is your goal to actually improve mobility of a certain joint prior to training that area or prior to just going out for a run? I think there's a lot of different timings of it, but vibration is huge. I, I'm a big proponent of using that stimulus um, in the clinic and not only for rehab, but for, for performance. Well, and kind of speaking of, you know, a, a stimulus to the muscle, I, I think another category that we could dive into a little bit for recovery tools are muscle stimulation devices. So, I mean, two examples that come to my mind right now are PowerDot and Firefly. I've, I mean, seen advertisements for those. I know athletes that use them, um, which are very different kind of an application, but both fire these electric pulses through the muscles to be able to stimulate recovery. Um, I mean, BJ, kind of what's your take on those muscle stimulation? products and how they could be helpful for athletes. Yeah, another big one. And you see it all over the marketplace. Um, and this one goes back a long, long time ago. I mean, so it's all under the category of what we call TENS, which is TENS, T-E-N-S stands for Transcutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation. TENS is easier to say. Yeah, <laughs> TENS, we'll just call it TENS. It's a mouthful. What's interesting about electrical stimulation in whatever form it's it's delivered um you know some of the my early research years were i i did a little bit in anatomy and cell biology and then as i was transitioning to physical therapy school i actually got involved in some pain science pain research labs and the lab i worked under specifically was was focused on tens and what it actually did to the body and how it had an influence on pain. So like we're talking about with delayed onset muscle soreness or that discomfort, whatever you want to call it. Some people would call it pain. Some people would just call it discomfort. Um, the way that TENS actually works is very interesting in that it, it works on the central nervous system through different channels. And it actually can work along the same channels as what opioid medication works on. So your opiate channels, it can actually work as an activation of those channels and and decrease your pain threshold or increase your pain thresholds, basically decreasing your pain or what we'd studied is, is called hyperalgesia. And what what basically we found that was really fascinating was that we studied it in a laboratory that we studied animal models. So we used rats as a model, which was a fun experience in and of itself. So here we are talking about snakes and rats in one episode. Yeah. That's got to be a first. <laughs> Ooh, my favorites. Ooh, yuck. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what was fascinating was that you could have an effect on the central nervous system and pain thresholds regardless of the area that you put the tens on. So for example, if we had a model in the rat that we had inflamed their calf, for example, and so we knew there was a chemical inflammation at play in the calf, we could put it, put the TENS pads on the exact opposite side, the contralateral limb, and see almost the exact same decrease in pain as you would on the actual side. Now, obviously, in ourselves, where perception guides behavior, right? Perception guides experience. So if we know, hey, my right knee hurts and I'm putting the tens or the, the pads or the complex on my opposite side, I'm thinking in my mind, there's no way this is going to work, right? Yeah. So that obviously has some power to influence. But the physiology behind it, because it works on the central nervous system in that way, 
it can be so powerful that it, it doesn't matter where you place it. But along the lines of what we were talking about earlier with massage and compression of the muscle having some influence as well, if you take a unit, like you mentioned before with the Power Dot, Firefly, we use Compex and different devices in our clinic. Um, if you took it on the muscle and you had the stimulation high enough to create that motor contraction and that muscle twitch like you'll experience, it has capacity to kind of do both things. It can obviously still be playing on the central nervous system at the same time as you're creating a stimulus or vibration or compression of the actual muscle. And so there's a lot of rationales as to why TENS or electrical stimulation can be therapeutic, um, but those are a couple of them that we, that's again what we think is happening. But there is some solid evidence, probably more with regards to TENS than there are for a lot of other things out there that it has that capacity to work. Now, personally, um, I've experienced it myself and there is some benefit that I find but some people again they they love it some people it's not a big factor for them so whether or not it's something that you splurge on and fork out the money to have your own personal device it, again it, it just all depends on on the feel for you so we've talked about you know the, these kind of fancier and I, I say fancier uh, compared to what we're about to talk about because uh, you know these, these are things that either um, you know, are, are, are pulsating through our muscles or helping our muscles vibrate or helping our muscles, um, you know, compress or massage. Um, but perhaps the more bread and butter recovery tool known to mankind is the foam roller. And now I personally have a very love hate relationship with my foam roller. Uh, it's like any relationship really the, the, the more time I invest in my relationship with my foam roller, the better things are, are going between us. Uh, but when I start neglecting our time together, my foam roller really lets me have it the next time we're together. So BJ, talk to us about what the purpose is for the foam roller and, and does it serve uh, a purpose over maybe these fancier tools we've been, we've been talking about already? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, love the foam roller. It's obviously a staple in our industry. And again, I think it comes back to understanding why and, and how we need to use it. I think a lot of times we think it's doing something that it's really not. Um, there's, you know, everybody, especially my runners, triathletes, everyone knows this. If they've used the foam roller, it's like, I got to roll my IT bands, you know, because those are inevitably the thing that gets so tight on everyone. Um, and, and what's interesting is, you know, the IT band, the iliotibial band runs from the hip to the knee. Most people know where it is because it usually hurts if they're running for any long period of time. <laughs> but, What's interesting, there is solid evidence with regards to how much force it actually takes to create what's considered deformation of, of the IT band. So there's an interesting study a, a long time ago, really, that showed that to actually create a 1% change in tissue deformation of the IT band, it would take up to 2,000 pounds of force to change that tissue 1%. So... That's a lot of force, right? Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way. No matter how much you weigh or think you weigh, there's no way you're applying that type of force through your foam roller on your IT band to actually change that tissue. So, mm -hmm. so why does it work? Again, you know, we don't necessarily have to know why it works. It just does. For a lot of us, that's fine. But what's interesting to think about is is what is it actually doing? Well, it's probably not actually 
changing the muscle length as much as we think it is. And in that case, with the IT band, it's not, it's not changing that connective tissue length directly because of that rolling effect. But again, it has the capacity to be compression to a muscle to evoke that stimulus to the brain, that afferent stimulus that can allow the brain to interpret it as, oh, I can, I can let my muscle that's been on, lights are on, but nobody's home. I can let that, that muscle that's been on for so long, we can flip the lights off on it and go back into kind of parasympathetic, parasympathetic stage and, and rest and recover. And, and so your brain, if it perceives it, you know, initially it can be a threat because it's pretty intense at sometimes. Um, if it can get to a point where you can let the muscle go and that conscious relaxation over the foam roll can, can have a huge therapeutic change and huge therapeutic benefit. So the foam roller, again, it's another type of that input to the system, that vibration or, or more compression to the system to relax a muscle. Even though it might not be doing what we think it's doing, it, it can definitely work. And and the, the thing to think about, too, is a lot of guys will play slave to their foam roller thinking that that's going to fix them. And the reality is the foam rolling will never fix you. Just, you know, we call these techniques resets in our clinic. And we always tell patients up front and, and any athlete that comes in our doors, we always tell them, you know, the reset gets a lot of press, but the reset will never fix you. The reset can be a, a means to an end, but but if your goal is to um, change a muscle, you can foam roll the rest of your life and it won't, you'll have to keep foam rolling, you know? So the idea is, can you use that in a meaningful way to actually get to another level with where your muscle needs to be? So if, if foam rolling work is working, you shouldn't need to keep foam rolling for the rest of your life, right? But it's a lot of it, and this is another topic altogether, but a lot of it's what we do after that reset. But we know that it is a powerful reset for sure. So a, a similar but different um, kind of application of the foam roller, you know, there are devices that you can roll over your muscles um, to kind of provide that deep tissue massage that you could get from a foam roller. Um, you know, th- these are usually some for- form of a stick or a rod you know, that you can kind of you know, roll, roll the knots out on different parts of, of your body, or, um, there's other products like, um, the R8 recovery roller, you know, that, that applies kind of roller skate looking wheels, um, to kind of roll over the muscle group. So, you know, are, are these kind of rolling rods in, in different forms of a deep tissue massage? Are, are they just kind of a different form of foam rolling or do they serve, um, kind of a different purpose in our arsenal? Yeah, and it's a great question. I, I think it's along the along the same lines. It's just a, a different flavor of it. And and sometimes the reason you'd go to one of those forms versus the other is is convenience and location. So depending on the area you're, you're trying to influence, you know, if it's the legs, a lot of times foam rollers, the, the big cylindrical ones work well. But if you got to, it's hard to travel with a, you know, a four foot roller in your bag or three foot roller mm-hmm. in your bag. So the portability of the sticks and, and the other tools you mentioned are, are, can do the same thing. I've, I've had patients even at home that don't have access to any of those tools, but I just, I've had them grab a rolling pin out of their kitchen before, you know, it, it doesn't have to be fancy. It, it just has to be able to give you the right input at the right location. So there's different tools that obviously are smaller to get into different areas, whereas bigger foam rollers can't reach as well. But you might find that 
one works better than the other and and it comes back to that whole adage of it depends if it if it feels good to you and hits the spot then then take the time it's funny cuz i just i was just asking uh, i had a high level runner in just the other day and he actually runs for hoka out in new york city and i was asking him kind of what his recovery arsenal was when when he was on the road and traveling and whatnot and he just he literally said his go-to was a lacrosse ball and he had a lacrosse ball in his bag at all times and he likes it just because it was it's easy to throw in a backpack and it does the trick for him it it hits the areas he needs to hit and gosh I mean, how inexpensive is that? A couple bucks and you're good to go. So kind of one final recovery tool I, I've seen making the rounds. Um, and I literally, I was I was on the Google machine just looking up all sorts of things, trying to make sure we covered um, anything that an athlete might be looking at out there on, um, you know, on the marketplace to buy. And so all my social media ads right now are now for recovery tools, thanks to research for this episode. <laughs> um, so some, something really different that I saw was... Um, muscle scraping, uh, and kind of myofascial release tools. Um, and, and an example I came across, um, was the sidekick muscle scraper. That's literally what they call it. It's a muscle scraper. Um, and, and this one, um, Olympic gold medalist in triathlon, Gwen Jorgensen, um, you know, has this and uses it after a lot of her workouts. She's somebody I follow on social media. Um, another I've seen ads for is the wave tool. Um, but both of these options and others like them, they're kind of shaped in a, in a sort of dull blade, kind of way that allows you to kind of scrape the edge of the device, um, across your skin to kind of work the muscle. Um, are, are these just kind of a different means to the same end? Um, or is this kind of something different we haven't talked about that should be looked into? Yeah. And again, I think it falls under that same category of input to the muscle, um, compression, massage. It has shown capacity to, to improve, um, interstitial fluid flow. Um, so, Going back to kind of what we were talking about before with with that input to the brain, this is a technique especially that's been around for for centuries. This this type of scraping technique has actually been around. It started in um, ancient Eastern medicine, and it's one of those techniques that you know sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Some of those techniques that have been used for centuries are actually still good to this date. Um, sometimes we learn a little bit more about why we use what we use and what's actually happening. But but what's really interesting, and this is a technique we use a lot in our clinic, um, it's kind of coined um, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization or ISTEM. And there's a lot of times in the clinic we just refer to it as scraping, which sounds daunting. A lot of people come in and we're like, <laughs> hey, we're going we're gonna to scrape you today. And they're looking at us like, what? But sounds, sounds more like a dentist procedure. Yeah, yeah, right. Like who wants that? But it actually can be really therapeutic, and and its ties to ancient Eastern medicine is interesting. It, they used to call it uh, back in the day gua sha, which gua sha stands for scrape fever. And back in the day, they used to think that the the more bruising basically that was evoked, or what we call petechiae, just kind of the the small breaking of the blood vessels that creates the red dots or the the bruising look or effect. It used to be thought of back in the day that the more bruising you evoked in the skin or the system, the the better release of whatever evil spirits were causing your body to hurt, right? Um, and I think that it's interesting because I think they were on the right track back then, 
But man, you look up gua sha techniques and you'll see some crazy like <laughs> self mutilation <laughs> pictures. It just looks horribly painful. But the techniques we use today in that form, like it uses these smooth edged tools. Uh, back in the day, it used to be like jade stone, or they'd take horns or bones of different animals and they'd the rounded edges of them. They'd manipulate the tissue to create that increase in blood flow and and we use the same types of techniques to this day as far as um, mobilization of, of tissue. There's there's tons of different types of tools, like you mentioned a couple, um, and they're all they're all a little bit different, but in essence, kind of do the same thing. A lot of it's just feel again, not only for the the person getting it done to them, but also if there's a practitioner involved. Sometimes it's a feel like. We use some really expensive scraping tools in the clinic here called Hot Grips, and there's other different brands, but they're literally made from like surgical grade stainless steel. And we found that you can kind of feel a little bit better through the instrument or the tool. You can kind of almost feel the vibration and the the little knots of the muscles a little bit better than just maybe your run-of-the-mill kind of plastic um, whatever type of tool. But but at any rate, it's honestly it's it's doing the same thing. So whether you're using it, whether you're using it to yourself or you're having somebody do it to you, um, it's really interesting. The the technique is there again for an input to the central nervous system to release adhesions, relax muscles, and so we think we know what it's doing. We may not completely know what it's doing, but all we know is that in the clinic we see it work, and it it can definitely have an influence. So BJ, we, you know, like Elizabeth said, we've talked about a lot of different products and, and obviously a, a big overarching theme here is that there's a lot of per- personal preference, right? That, that comes into play. Um, you know, should you get the boots, you know, sure. If you like them and prefer them, you know, should you get a massage gun? Um, you know, sure. If you like that and, and prefer that and, and find it helpful, um, you know, and then which one do you get? Well, there's several, they do different things. It, it seems like just across the board, um, there's a lot of personal preference that comes into play. So, so if you just are kind of wrapping us up with just this this peek into physical therapist BJ Leaper, you know, th- this is what I recommend. You know, you look into you know to to kind of have a well rounded you know recovery section of your pain cave. You know, what what are maybe the the few things that you would recommend um, folks get? Yeah. So. I mean, there's kind of two categories. There's obviously the the budget category and then the the all-in category, right? Um, What's funny is that I have access to all these tools at the clinic. Um, The ones I actually own personally are are very few and definitely budget-friendly. So um, the the tools I have on individually at home um, are actually uh, a medium-density foam roll and a lacrosse ball and I've got those sitting out in my bedroom and and close to the our bathroom and those are kind of my I always say it's like your daily musculoskeletal hygiene it's like flossing for your teeth um, those I have them sitting out just because every time I walk by them I, I think to myself oh yeah I got it I should get on that and, and do my own kind of proactive uh, care prophylactive care but a foam roll and a lacrosse ball I mean, you could snag those for about 25 bucks total, um, maybe maybe less, right? But one, I have found myself, well, two, really, I have really found myself gravitating towards 
just in the last five years probably um, that if I, I don't actually own these myself, again, I'm kind of spoiled that I can I can get access to them in the clinic anytime. But um, if I were going to purchase for myself, I would I would for myself knowing what you know just how I feel with it, I would definitely probably grab a, a hypervolt hyper uh, vibration handheld vibration gun by Hyperice and probably some Normatec boots, compression boots for my legs. I just have found that those two for me just are, are money makers. I love it when with the Hypervolt gun because my kids can use it on me and I, I'll just say, hey, they think it's fun. I'll say, hey, come on, come on over here and, and they'll pound on my neck and back for a little while with it. But, but those are, those are a couple go-tos that I find myself gravitating towards not only in the clinic for other individuals, but just personally for myself. I, I just love them. Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. We spent a lot of time today on our main set, and for good reason. Uh, I mean, that was just a tremendous amount of valuable insight from Dr. BJ Leeper on recovery tools. Uh, we already have plans to record more with him to kind of just further learn about different recovery techniques, functional movement screenings, injury prevention, and so much more. Um, so be at, on the lookout for those episodes. Um, so today, just going so long on the main set, I want to keep our cooldown a little short. Um, I just wanted to take a quick moment and thank all of the athletes and listeners who responded to our Tridot podcast survey. The podcast has been out for just over a year now, uh, and we want these conversations to just be as beneficial as possible for you the athletes listening in. So as we kind of plan out future episodes um, and guests, your feedback will just be invaluable in helping us craft a triathlon show for the people. Um, so if you miss the opportunity to take the survey and provide feedback, um, it's probably because you're not on our email list for the podcast. To get your email added so you don't miss any future podcast communication, head to trydot.com slash podcast and click on the email message symbol uh, which will allow you to join the Tridot Podcast email list. Well, that's it for today, folks. I want to thank Dr. BJ Leeper and pro triathlete Elizabeth James for talking recovery tools with us today. Shout out to Tribike Transport for partnering with us on today's episode. As you prep for next year's races, head to tribiketransport.com to get your bike to the starting line. Enjoying the podcast? Have a great idea for a warm-up question like our friend Shannon? Head to trydot.com slash podcast and click on leave us a voicemail to record your voice for the show. We'll do it all again soon. Until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the Tridot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize.